Welcome to SciSection. My name is Amy Stewart, and I'm the journalist for the SciSection radio show broadcasted on CFMU 93.3 FM radio station. We are here today with Dr. Stacy Smith, a professor in the Department of Mathematics and Faculty of Medicine at the University of Ottawa. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So to get us started, why don't you give us a brief rundown of who you are, your career, and how you ended up in your field? Yes, yeah, so I'm a professor of biomathematics, so that means I use mathematics to study infectious diseases, and I've been studying pandemics and vaccines for more than 20 years now, uh, so it was quite amusing when COVID came along and suddenly it's in my backyard and everyone's an expert and all sorts of things for something I've been doing for a long time. Uh, I'm at the University of Ottawa, I'm in the Department of Mathematics and also the Faculty of Medicine. Awesome, thank you. So I think I read on your website that you're also from Australia, so you made the trip all the way over here. That's pretty awesome. We're glad to have yes. you at the University of Ottawa. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I originally came to McMaster University to study. Um, so I, I came over to my master's and PhD and then I loved Canada so much, I ended up staying. I mean, I had a little detour to the US for a few years, but yes, ended up, <laughs> ended up back, in, back in Canada, which was, was awesome. Well, we're happy to have you. So right now, what is the current focus of your work and research? So I, I look at a lot of different diseases. So of course, COVID is, is a big thing. So I'm working on a lot of COVID stuff, but I'm also very interested in the neglected tropical diseases. So lots of diseases affect a lot of people who don't have money or power, and therefore there's not a lot of effort being put into them. I mean, it's, it's fascinating watching the kind of like, you know, socioeconomic kind of, you know, issues that, that just kick in when diseases happen. So of course, COVID comes and we, you know, invest massive amounts of money and time and effort and so on in order to counteract COVID. Uh, but there are many people suffering all kinds of diseases, which are arguably much worse, and they don't get this kind of time and effort and money and so on. Um, so one great thing about mathematics, I mean, of course, mathematics is very powerful. Uh, it can be used to do amazing things like predict the future. Um, but I think the greatest thing about it is, of course, it's cheap. <laughs> so you don't need to do giant field studies and you know get these enormous grants or anything like that you can just start working um, and so that means you can make actually some you know decent predictions based on just sort of a you know general understanding of the biology so uh, that means we can work on projects that other people can't necessarily do um, so I'm very interested in in basically I mean I guess using math to help the world uh, that's really always been my goal and uh, and I love that. That is so awesome you get to help a lot of people um, and you to spread the word about these different diseases that maybe people would know about and you get to do it like you said without costing very much money. Okay, your work must be especially pertinent these days with the ongoing pandemic. Tell us about some of the research and publications you've done regarding COVID-19. So very, very early in the pandemic, and by this I mean like, you know, basically day one, <laughs> the University of Ottawa came to me and they said, uh, we have no information. We don't know what to do. This was, you know, March 12th, 2020. And uh, the university said, do we shut down? Do we, you know, like go to like, you know, a half and half model? What, what should we do? And they basically said, we haven't seen any modeling that basically kind of like makes like, you know, very concrete predictions about, you know, if you have a single case on campus, how long until the first you know, like, you know, outbreak, basically, how long till the first death, how long till, you know, whatever. And, and so they basically sent an email to a bunch of us. Um, everyone else was busy that day. I happened to be free. So I said, sure, I can work on this. So I did that like in one day. And so, you know, normally research takes a long time, but this was like crunch time. Um, and so I delivered it to them about two in the morning and I said, actually, I've answered all your questions. And, you know, like, of course we don't have all the data. So the great thing about math is you can do many options at once. So I said, well, here's the best case scenario. Here's the worst case scenario and so on. The very next day they shut down campus completely. 
Um, so basically, it was sort of you know, a few hours later, uh, and they we were one of the first campuses to shut down. And this was not a thing that was was necessarily happening at the time. Um, it was very unknown as to what the best course of action was. And so basically, the university said, "Yeah, we're taking this very seriously. We're shutting down because you know we've seen the modelling." Um, so that kind of got me started in COVID nineteen, and I've done lots of other things um, uh, because I'm I'm an expert in vaccines and basically you know people's reactions to vaccines. Uh, this has been a prime time for me. Uh, I mean, I sort of you know I I, I wish it wasn't right. I wish that everybody just kind of got the vaccine and that was it but of course like you know conspiracy theories and you know like irrational fears of vaccines and so on are very strong um, and they've been strong for hundreds of years right this is not new none of this stuff is new the same talking points from conspiracy theories have been happening for for generations now um, you know some of the nouns change but the, the overall attitudes don't they've been anti-vax people since as long as there's been vaccines um, there were huge protests in the 1920s against the smallpox vaccine and you know so that, none of this is new um, and yet we have access to a lot more information than we've ever had so that makes it you know an interesting challenge to kind of think about um, so I'm, I'm really super interested in people and I really find like people's reactions to diseases absolutely fascinating sometimes frustrating but absolutely fascinating Wow, that is awesome how you uh, combine the social aspects and the mathematical aspects of the pandemic and bring it together to really uh, help the university find a plan and a way to battle the pandemic. That's that's awesome. My next question for you is at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, I'm sure you and many other people were hearing the common phrase flatten the curve. Is there a mathematical justification behind that and how accurate is it or is there a better way to put it? Uh, the, the flatten the curve line was a pretty effective one. Uh, yeah, essentially, there's only so many beds in the in the ICU, and you know the, the hospital system, as a kind of like you know default, operates almost at capacity all the time because this is a good cost savings measure. And you know even in Canada, this is run on the capitalist model. So you know we we basically are like you know, trying to minimize empty beds all the time. And in, in a non-pandemic era, that's fine because like, you know, most of the time people are not overwhelming hospitals. The problem is you have to sometimes be ready for when really bad stuff happens. And the pandemic means you're going to have a lot more people coming to the hospital. And so, the, you know, there are two ways to deal with this. One is you, you flatten the curve by basically trying to minimize the number of people coming in. The other way is you just build more hospitals. That's what they did in China. Um, and so, you know, you could open capacity. That's another possibility, but that's not one that we chose to do. So the flatten the curve for you know the constraints of the system was a pretty good idea um I, I just you know would like to sort of open the question of like whether that's the only idea that we should be doing okay and switching gears a little bit i saw you did a lot of research on hiv aids and i just wanted to know what are some different ways you've used mathematical models to study this epidemic and what are some of your most interesting findings regarding it uh, so HIV AIDS is a fascinating disease, uh, a really terrible one in so many ways. And, you know, I grew up in, in the shadow of this because this, you know, was, was suddenly this scary new pandemic at a time when I was, you know, just, a, you know, becoming a teenager, I think. And so it was absolutely terrifying to all of us, as I'm sure COVID-19 is to like, you know, younger people today. Uh, and one of the funny things about COVID is that my, my colleague and I were talking at the very beginning of it, and she said, should we get into this new disease? And we sort of said, well, I suppose we could, but it's not very interesting. And I kind of stand by that. It's not very interesting. There's nothing that interesting about COVID except for its ability to spread. And what you want with a pandemic is you don't want an interesting disease. You want a really boring one that you know what to do with. And COVID is pretty boring, right? COVID is a textbook respiratory disease. It spreads pretty far, pretty easily. You know, people breathe and that's how they catch it. And there's nothing fascinating about that in some ways. So that, that means all the standard things work. That's why masks and distancing and so on work. But with HIV, it's, no, it's not a boring disease at all. It's a totally fascinating disease, which is what makes it so difficult. I mean, we came up with a COVID vaccine within a, you know, the first year of the disease. It's been you know, 
30 odd years for HIV. We, we are no closer to a HIV vaccine because it's a really, really tricky problem. Um, so I think it also taps into a lot of the social stuff, which I'm fascinated by. Um, so for example, when you know HIV comes along, of course, there's a lot of homophobia and there's a lot of kind of like, you know, like rejection of people who might seem to be diseased. And so whether they are or not is, is sometimes is barely relevant, um, but people sort of, I, I think they, there's, an, there's a narrative approach to disease, right? People say, well, you know, there's a scary disease that I have absolutely no control over and I don't want to catch this disease, what shall I do? And what people often do, and they do in COVID too, is they fall back on the superpower that humans have, which is the ability to tell stories. And so they tell stories about the disease. And if you can tell a powerful enough story, you can, you can wipe this disease out of your, your consciousness because if you basically say like well this won't affect me because I'm a whatever person if you know if I'm a moral person and the disease is affecting the impure then I, I cannot be infected and therefore this disease basically goes away from me and if that's true sure but the problem is whether it's true or not it takes a second you know kind of like tear to, to the, the narrative and so HIV AIDS really suffered from this because a lot of people said oh well it, you know at first it only seems to affect you know like men who have sex with men and so therefore since that's not me therefore I won't get the disease but then they sort of keep going with the therefores and they say well therefore you know we need to like you know ban things therefore you know there's all these these groups that are you know undesirable um, and it wasn't just just sort of gay sex it was you know like at the time there was you know people from Haiti and um, you know these days it's it's, it's very rampant in Africa and so on. So of course, there's a lot of racism involved. Uh, uh, yeah, there's, there's all kinds of things that happen. And so trying to get a handle on all this and sort of quantify stuff is, is very difficult. But to me, that's, that's the real challenge. And that's what makes it interesting. That's amazing how part of the mathematics and modeling diseases in, includes taking into account these different factors like homophobia, like racism. And that makes it very difficult, I'm sure, to model and predict and find ways to treat it effectively. Yeah, I mean, it absolutely does. And also, I, I also want to stress, this is not something that's been done that much. Um, because I think a lot of people kind of threw their hands up in the air and said, well, it's all just too hard. So let's just not kind of think about that so much. Um, and I think part of the problem is, is that, you know, when people get PhDs in a subject, they often don't, you know, know much about other related subjects. So for example, you know, I did my PhD in math, and then I had to learn biology along the way. Um, and, you know, I'm not a you know, expert in biology, I don't have a PhD in it, but I know enough about it to kind of get through, you know, the, the stuff I need for the diseases. Um, and by chance, I have a kind of informal background in like, you know, communication theory and, and women's studies and so on. Um, so therefore, I actually knew a lot more than sort of the average kind of mathematical modeler about kind of how to think about sort of structures in, in human societies and so on. Um, and this is just not something that's ever taught because, the, you know, we keep these disciplines very far apart. And you kind of, if you have a science degree, you don't learn much about social sciences and vice versa. So I think it's absolutely crucial if we're going to manage real problems that we have to deal with them holistically. You have to deal with the whole problem. You can't just deal with one piece of it. You know, it's fine if you invent a vaccine, but if nobody's going to take it because they're all worried about, you know, 5G or something ridiculous, then what's the point of your vaccine? You have to deal with these problems as they come. And so I think that's why it's imperative that people actually get a, a broad education. Um, and I feel very fortunate that I was able to get that, but that's just happenstance in my case. And we need to, I think, make that systemic. Your career really seems to give the whole picture of what it means to be working in math and to be a mathematician. I mean, you show all the different factors. It's not just being able to do math, but it is the biology, the social aspect. It's impressive that that all goes into a math career. And coming off of that, you seem to have a very unique career in math. Uh, one of the most notable and unique topics you've worked on is zombie apocalypses. Let's hear a little bit about that, your inspiration for that project and how you won a Guinness World Record. 
Yes, yeah, so, so the zombie disease is a really funny one because obviously it's a fake disease. Um, and what I what I'd done was I'd, I'd said to my, my class, when I was teaching a, an advanced class in um, disease modeling, I said, you know, you can do your final project on any disease you want. Basically, develop the mathematics of a disease and I don't care which disease. And so basically, you know, pick your favorite one or whatever. And people did HIV and malaria and, you know, Ebola and all kinds of fun things. And then one group said, could we do zombies? And they later told me they thought I would shoot this down. They said, oh, there's no way the professor is going to go for this. But what, what they hadn't counted on was I'm such a science fiction nerd um, that I was like, oh, I love it. This is great. And the reason I loved it immediately was because I thought this is a great teaching moment. I thought, you know, for the final presentation of this course, this will be really fun. It will, it will teach the other students how disease modeling works in a, just a really like accessible way. And I only saw as far as that. I was only thinking of the final project in the course. But what I, what I realized later was like, oh, this is, of course doesn't just apply to students. This applies to everyone because doing zombies basically reaches people where they live. Like even though people aren't living in a zombie apocalypse, they, they you know, zombies are a fun thing in the media that everybody knows about. Like, you know, my, my mother who's never watched a zombie movie knows what zombies are. And so people were able to be like, oh, cool, zombies. Like that's fun. Whereas people did not really want to think much about, you know, an awful disease that might be coming to affect them someday. Now, of course that it did actually happen, whereas the zombies don't happen, but still we'd rather think about kind of fun things. Um, you know, we'd like our scares to be amusing and entertaining rather than, than too real. And so the zombie, I think, you know, gave us a kind of framework for teaching disease modeling. A lot of people came to me and said, I never knew there was even such a thing as mathematical modeling of diseases until you did the zombie stuff. And wow, now I'm totally inspired. And now I want to do that myself. And lots of people told me that they went into disease modeling specifically because of the zombies. And so I just absolutely love that, that I could, you know, reach out to people in a fun and entertaining way. And also they could learn something because I think that sometimes we lean way too much into one or the other. And again, these, these, things are often kept very separate but like you, you, know, you can have a good time at the movies but you know you're not expected to turn your brain off um, but you don't have to turn your brain off at the same time on the flip side academia is often done as very dry and boring and it's kind of no fun at all it's just something you kind of have to learn and that's not true it can totally be fun and entertaining and all sorts of things so yeah I was really pleased with that and the, and the Guinness World Record was so funny to me because it just we didn't even know about it. it just it just got announced one day um it's, it's one of the lesser guinnesses they, they sort of have the main ones and then these these sort of reserve ones i guess um my student had found it and and it was basically a guinness world record for the first ever model of a zombie invasion and i thought well if it's the first then that means no one can supersede us so hooray we have a guinness world record so i was very amused by this um it and i think it was one of those just you know fun media things that was happening because because it, it was a very slow news month when the zombies were happening so it was in like all the newspapers and tv and everything it was, you know, it's the number one story on the BBC. Uh, you know, it was it was just hilarious to me that people were like, you know, going crazy for mathematics. Like it was just bizarre that that people were really, really like, you know, just going head over heels for something that you know I was just kind of doing in my my spare time. Um, so yeah, it was it was a fun thing, but I I feel like I really caught lightning in a bottle there. That's awesome. It seems like a really great way to bring math to people who, you know, just see it in that stereotypical light of not being so entertaining. And you really, uh, you really showed it that it could be something special and that's something everybody can relate to. That's, that's awesome. I, I, so I think one of the key things for me actually was because I had a very working class background. I didn't know what university even was. And, you know, my, my brother's a plumber and my dad was a carpenter and my mom's a secretary. Like, like we didn't have like any kind of, you know, like academic background and because I grew up in Australia there were you know like tuition was very low and you know there were scholarships available and so on so I was able to get through the system um, in a way that I probably wouldn't have if the fees were what they are today and so I think the problem is that we are losing out on you know like you know 
perspectives that we aren't getting. Um, because if everyone's living in their ivory tower, they're not sort of seeing this, this bigger picture. And I think I was very fortunate that because I was so working class, I had to explain what I was doing to my, my family and friends and so on. And they did not want to know the details. They were like, don't tell us any math. Like, do not explain in too much detail. We don't want to know it. So you had to basically kind of like, you know, bring it down to a level that people who hated math were able to understand. And that was a real challenge. It took me many years to learn, but I feel like those skills really paid off. I just love how it inspired so many of your students to consider a career in uh, disease modeling. So for my final question is, if you were to try to inspire more students to go into that, what, what would you say to convince them? Uh, I, I think there's a real need for experts these days. Um, I think that the kind of like, you know, conspiracy stuff around, you know, vaccination for COVID and stuff has really proved that we need people who really know what they're talking about. Right. And it is not enough to just kind of, you know, do some afternoons research on the Internet. Right. I mean, this is this is a really bad model. Um, I would absolutely love it if somebody came along who knew nothing about my field and basically asked insightful questions and had insights and came up with answers that we'd never thought of. But I would like to stress it has never happened. I've never seen this happen. I mean, science is often updating itself and science is often incorrect. But the people who discover that are other scientists, right? It's it's not Joe Average sitting at home. And I think the problem is that, you know, movies and so on have, have all made this kind of narrative that, you know, Joe Average with common sense can see things that experts miss. And actually it's not true, right? It just, in reality, it doesn't happen, but that, that's, you know, not, not the way people perceive things. They perceive things from what they've seen and what they've seen generally is this kind of, you know, very consistent narrative that like, you know, the average person is just as good as an expert. And I'm sorry, it's just not true. And so what we do is we need more experts. So I desperately implore people to, you know, study science, to, you know, like investigate things, not just on a superficial level, but on a deep level. Um, and it doesn't have to necessarily be through the traditional roots of academia, but it does have to be depthful. And people are not good at depthful stuff, especially with the internet. That's a great answer. I'm sure we've all seen after this past year, all the ignorance that have come out of the pandemic and how people try to do their own research, but is never quite successful. I think you're right. We definitely need more experts and people who want to find the correct answers. Thank you so much for taking the time to meet with me, Dr. Smith. Learning about your career and research was a fantastic window into what the world of applied mathematics is. If anyone would like to read more about Dr. Smith's research, check out our website linked on the U Ottawa Department of Mathematics and Statistics page. That's it for this week of Sci Section. Make sure to check out our podcast available on global platforms and for our latest interviews.